0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au.
1: So, And this is um, just for introduction to those who don't know me. I think most people here know me, but online maybe not so. And my name's Ajahn Nisarano, and I'm a monk who ordained, Australian monk who ordained with Ajahn Brahm. About 25 years ago was my full ordination, so quite a while ago. But for uh, almost 14 years, I lived in Sri Lanka, and, uh, and eight years, eight of those years, living in a cave on the side of a mountain, which was a really lovely time. Very, very, very nice time. But because of a nature impermanence, I've I'm now passed it. <laughs> Going up and down the mountain too difficult. So that's the way of it. And so... Uh, I'd just like to uh, mention too that at the end of this uh, talk, I'll dedicate the merit to the first death anniversary for Ajahn Wayama or Iyo She's the founder of Dhammasara's Nuns Monastery in Western Australia, probably the largest. What well, is the largest community of fully ordained nuns here in Australia? I think at last count, up to about sixteen or something. So it's really, uh, really growing. So that's great, and she passed away on the twentieth November last year, and was a very inspiring. A teacher, she gave nice stomach talks, but her best stomach talks, perhaps, were when she got really sick, and she had this disease with degeneration of the cerebellum. I think they call it. No, it's degeneration, and so could lost speech and ability to move, and yet was seemed when I saw her. Very cheerful, very happy within herself. So that's a that's a real Dhamma teaching, I say. And of course, it's also tomorrow is the death anniversary for Savitri's husband, Lasat, who passed away uh, last year on the 21st. So it's, a, it's it keeps happening. It's a continuous process. This Anicca nature reminding us we're not here forever. Let's do what's important. <laughs> So that's good. So we'll do that at the end of the uh, Dhamma talk. But the theme for the Dhamma talk today is, I think, very relevant to people. I mean, when people hear it in Buddhist world, they often think, oh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> and that is uh, about wanting, craving. We have this uh, um, other words, expectation. Um, and uh, this is, of course, the Pali word, tanha. And I subtitle this talk, the slave master or the slave driver, because the Buddha referred to um, most people as being tanha dasa, the slaves of craving. I know each and every one of you probably thinks, I'm not, (laughs) thank you very much, and you aren't, at least at the moment, you're not at Chadston, (laughs) as I call it, the tanha center, the craving center, and I'm sure there are many down at that temple at this very moment, actually more than we've got here. But we are, uh, if we're not enlightened, we are actually all slaves of craving. And we don't realize it. And I will go, with this is the subject of the talk. And so what what teaching of the Buddha really explains craving or talks about craving? Anyone got any ideas? It's very easy. Sorry? Yeah, that's the first teaching of the Buddha. Yeah, it's, that's where he first outlined uh, Tanha as being the, uh, this craving, this wanting, this desire, expectation, where he pointed out that this is the culprit for keeping us getting reborn again and again. And so he, this was in the setting, for, setting in motion of the wheel of Dhamma, the first teaching, Dhamma Chakra Puratna Sutta. So last time I gave a teaching here was about, actually, the Four Noble Truths. So some people will think, oh no, he's going on about it again. <laughs> but to be honest, I think the Buddha went on about it quite a lot, actually. And when you, when you see his teachings, it's just so amazing that that is his first teaching, the Four Noble Truths, and all the rest of his teachings fit into that Four Noble Truths. And of course, you know the fourth factor of the noble eight, uh, the fourth factor of the uh, four noble truths is the noble eightfold path. And what is the first factor? Right view. And what is and being part of a right view? Four noble truths. So it goes around, and it's really extraordinary that he focused so much on these four noble truths. And uh, I always uh, think of uh, when the Buddha, for instance, he was in the Sinsapath, forest they call it, these trees, and he picked up some leaves and uh, he asked the monks, which are more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves overhead in the trees? Well, of course, (laughs) the leaves overhead. And he said, what I teach is like the leaves in my hand. What I know is like the leaves overhead. What I teach, the leaves in my hand, they are useful, they are beneficial for the spiritual life. What I know these things are not necessarily beneficial for practicing the spiritual life. So, the, And what does he teach? Then he says, Four Noble Truths. <laughs> and of course, this is our breakthrough to enlightenment when we realize the Four Noble Truths. So it, sometimes it's t- taught as being, you know, sort of like the uh, uh, introductory teaching or something, but it is actually the foundational teaching. It's, not a, it's, not a, it's something that we grow in, we understand more and more, and if we are good students of life we're getting teachings <laughs> about the four noble truths almost uh, day well daily almost moment by moment actually and especially as we get older and this body is reminding us of uh, a dukkha unsatisfactoriness and suffering so so today as as james pointed out i will focus on the second noble truth because this is about wanting or craving tanha and uh, I, uh, next, uh, next two talks, I'll focus on the third noble truth and then the fourth noble truth, the, eight, uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. But I can remember when I was in Sri Lanka and I was staying in that cave. I mentioned I stayed in a cave for eight years. I remember in the early days of staying there, I was in the cave, sleeping one night. The cave was quite comfortable. I think that stage may be just mud walls, but later became brick walls and very comfortable with tiles and attached bathroom and all that. But uh, at that stage, I think it may have been uh, this matty kuti, mud kuti, mud as they sometimes call it, clay kuti. And um, at midnight, I was awoken by this sound of drumming bit unusual, I thought. What is it? I woke up up with this sort of irritation. What's what's this? What's happening? And all this. And then I recognized what was happening, what was going on, where this sound was coming from. In Sri Lanka, and particularly in the villages, love, people love all-night chanting. (laughs) This was part of the all-night chanting. And at midnight, roughly around midnight, it must happen every time they do the all-night chanting, it's set. You know, it's a set of different uh, teachings from the Buddha. They chant this teaching, the Satcha Vibhanga Sutta, which is the explanation of the truths, Four Noble Truths. And each truth, they hit the drum. (laughs) So it was really amazing for me to wake up with irritation. And then when I recognized it, I was so happy, delighted. I thought, oh, it's the Four Noble (laughs) Truths. So it was really interesting for me to see how perception could flip when we understand what's going on. That's true in our lives too. Often there are irritating situations or people in our lives. But when we understand what's going on, either with them or ourselves, and we can accept it, then we can let go of it. Or perhaps, as in this case, have a lot of delight and joy that I was actually hearing the Four Noble Truths. So wonderful. Um, we don't get those opportunities here in Australia very often. The council would close us down. <laughs> the police would come. I'm sorry. <laughs> All night chanting is not possible here, I think. I'd have to do it without the loudspeakers. That's what I should say it is with the loudspeakers. And when you're on a, this cave was on a mountain, side of a mountain in the forest, so the sound rises. So it's almost like it's, it was in the cave. You know, you could hear it very, very clearly and sometimes could even hear the words quite clearly. So this is the Four Noble Truths, and it reminded me of the verse from the Dhammapada, uh, from the, uh, the Magga Wagga, the way or the path of the chapter. And it says, Of all the paths, the Eightfold Path is the best. Of all the truths, the Four Noble Truths are the best of all things, dispassion, or fading away is another translation, is the best. Fading away of defilements, negative qualities. Of people, the seeing one, the Buddha, is the best, the one with vision. So this is the the teaching of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, is really his message to us. It's his uh, attempt to rescue us from this not knowing what the world is about, not knowing what reality is about. And you see, don't you, so many people in this world have no idea what life is about. And because of that confusion, there's a lot of suffering that, uh, they, that comes with it. I often reflect the kangaroos don't suffer like that at the monastery. We have a monastery outside Melbourne, and it's, uh, we have lots of kangaroos. I sometimes call it a kangaroo farm. But they don't suffer like that mentally, you know, the, as much as human beings do. I often say, when it's raining outside, they're standing in the rain, getting totally soaked, or it's snowing outside, I often say, they're not thinking, I wish I was on the Gold Coast. This is a sunny part of Australia that's very often very warm and definitely not uh, uh, getting away from the cold. So I'll start with the Second Noble Truth. I think most people know the Second Noble Truth. We've all heard these words, but to really to get the feel for them, to really see how they apply to our lives in big time, not just as a theory, not just as a concept, is our job as Buddhists, actually. And when we do understand them, the the Lord Buddha, he actually says that some, a person who understands the, the Four Noble Truths will be what will be accompanied will be accompanied by joy and happiness. Only, only joy and happiness when they see the four noble truths. So some people think, Oh, these four noble truths are so depressing. <laughs> but it's not, it's not. And somebody that does see them will be full of this joy and happiness. Because they know the nature of reality and they know uh, that it's not that they've been getting it wrong, you know, that they're not good enough, not smart enough, not attractive enough or whatever it is. This is the nature of reality and uh, that can bring this joy and happiness and relief. (laughs) Relief. So the Second Noble Truth, I think most of you have heard, this is Ajahn Sajjato's translation. So... Now this is the, the noble truth of the origin of suffering, Samudaya. It's the craving that leads to future rebirth mixed up with relishing and greed, taking pleasure in various different realms. That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for uh, to continue existence and craving to end existence. So this is the uh, the description the Buddha gives us of craving and the various types of craving, but this is really the origin of suffering. is very important to see. You know, even though the Buddha is mentioning that it's the craving that leads to rebirth, if you remember your first noble truth, you realise that all craving is going to lead to uh, unsatisfactoriness, to suffering. All craving will lead that way. Not getting what we want, being associated with people and things that we don't like, being separated from those that we do like and the things that we like. So this is, in and of its nature, craving leads to this sort of suffering. But uh, it also leads us to being reborn, which for the Buddha is the main problem, actually. The main problem, all this wanting, desire, expectation, anticipation. And uh, the thing is, as I mentioned, when we hear this, we hear these words, we hear these concepts, it doesn't, we, it doesn't go deep for us. We think, oh, yeah, yeah craving, yes, it's, it's going to lead to suffering or uh, wanting is going to lead to suffering. But we don't see it in our life that actually... This process of craving is running all the time, almost constantly. And it's very sobering to see that actually. I remember when I was in uh, Myanmar and staying with Sayadu Utejanir, and that, that uh, uh, meditation technique uh, focuses on the mind, Chitta Nupasana. And I can just see the stream of, uh, of the mind reacting to whatever I experience, either like, dislike don't care <laughs> which is of course you know pleasant feeling unpleasant feeling neutral feeling and of course that is feeding you know then craving because that when we like something we think wow well, I might I want to get that actually often we think that and so this process is not something that is just in the books <laughs> not something that applies to other people it applies to us on a daily basis, almost moment-by-moment moment basis. But how many of us recognize that is another thing altogether. And, of course, when we have the Four Noble Truths, that's like a conceptual framework, isn't it? It's these four concepts. But the Buddha is just amazing as a teacher because he gives us dependent originations, which is the sort of, I call it a flow chart, but it's what what we experience, how how this uh, unsatisfactoriness, how this suffering arises and how it can cease. It would be bad news, wouldn't it, if he only described the arising of suffering. He didn't describe the ending of suffering or cessation of suffering. And that's why sometimes people say, oh, Buddhism, yes, so pessimistic, <laughs> so dark. But they forget he's actually, the Buddha's actually teaching the ending of suffering. This is the main point to uh, teaching about suffering itself. So we can finish with it. And for the Buddha, finishing with suffering, ending suffering, is not just a temporary thing. It's to end it permanently. So this is a big-time solution that uh, very few other religious spiritual teachers have come across. Very few philosophers have really come across either. And what's more, the Buddha is giving us a path of practice to do this, not just a theory, not just a philosophy. He's giving us a way to end suffering. It's very interesting because I know uh, there's one teacher, Baron Katie, and I see the advertisements for some of her teaching, and it's about, she says, the ending of suffering. <laughs> but I don't think it's a permanent ending <laughs> of suffering. Maybe reduction of suffering in this life but it's not the eradication, the abandoning, letting go of suffering full-time. So so this is the dependent origination really shows us how, you know, the suffering arises and how craving comes about. I sort of more or less gave you the idea about, um, gave you the understanding about liking leading to feeling and then that leading to craving or wanting. So... We cannot turn off these six senses. We can be unconscious for a time, or we can be even in deep meditation and let go of hearing, smelling, tasting and touching. But we can't turn it off, actually. So this is one of the things that is built into our system as human beings, as most most beings have some sort of sense bases, we call them. We can't turn them off. But when we understand the process... It changes things and then we can not take it so personally and then we can let go. It gives us equips us with the possibility of letting go, of just being a victim of sense experience. And of course the it's a party, you all probably know it, is the, the six sense bases. This is hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, having the eyes, the ears and all that stuff, and the mind. And then from that, when we contact the world, when we pay attention to something, the eye's are working and there's, uh, say for instance, a visual object, then there's this contact. And from that contact, then we get this feeling, either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it has to be based on our previous experiences too, of things that were similar, that will give rise to a pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, or neutral. And then, because something is pleasant, we go for it. We want it. <laughs> and so we, we, we crave for it. We desire it. And then when we crave and desire for it, we want it, uh, then we will attach to that. If we find that satisfying, if we think, yeah, that's great. You know, it was a really nice tea, type of tea or a type of coffee or a type of food or a particular type of music... Um, or uh, whatever experience, particular place that we've been to. People like Pali, don't they? (laughs) And then we'll attach to it. And then the Buddha says, this will give rise to existence. Usually this is in terms of rebirth. We'll we'll go to an existence based on those sorts of desires and cravings we have. The mechanism for rebirth we getting reborn again and again, what do you think it is? Craving, it is. We want to. <laughs> we want to get reborn, basically. And, uh, and if possible, we want to get reborn with all the people and things that we like. And so this, this takes us to a new existence. But even in this life, as I said to people, sometimes we feel like different parts of our lives are like another existence, you know, a different chapter in our lives. And for instance, for me, before I became a monk, is like another chapter. Uh, and now I'm a monk. It's a different chapter and quite a different world and quite a different understanding. So this is a process that the Buddha is outlining as the process that gives rise to the gives rise to unsatisfactoriness or suffering. Anything, anything that's impermanent, that's changeable, can never give us permanent happiness, can never give us permanent satisfaction, it has to be that it will always be imperfect, isn't it? it can't can't r- remain perfect for maybe for a very short time. Uh, We say either it changes, the thing that we, you know, the person that we are focused on or the thing that we want to get in our lives changes, or we change. We no longer feel the same way about that person or that object that we wanted. So this change is really inherent in the whole process, and it means that things will tend, have to be, unsatisfactory. And also, if it's all impermanent, what about I, me, and uh, mine, all that? That's impermanent myself too. But, and I mentioned that craving in and of itself, this uh, uh, second noble truth, that the origin of craving, origin of suffering, is, is, is by itself uh, suffering or unsatisfactory because whenever, um, uh, whenever we don't have what we want, we feel, you know, this sort of um, this feeling of dissatisfaction for sure. You know, we've got to get this thing. And the interesting thing with craving is it sort of like blocks out... Everything we do have, all that we do have, and we, we tend to focus on what's missing in our life. What we've got to get? You know, what's, what we to die for is what they say, isn't it? <laughs> the bucket list, you know, have to get it. And everything else is obscured by that, that strong craving, that strong desire, like the old image of the hand in front of the face, and I can't see much of you, and uh, I see the hand. I don't see the rest of the picture. And that's the same for all of us and it gives rise to this sense that we haven't we're lacking we're incomplete we've got to get this uh, whatever it is in order to be fulfilled in order to be satisfied and of course one of the one of the best examples of the power of craving of desire of wanting is falling in love <laughs> falling in love is very much like that people we celebrate it in songs and all this sort of thing, but even those songs, have you noticed, very tortured often, and you know all about broken hearts and and when you think of it, if somebody told you, you know, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I can't focus on anything, what would you say? Would you say, go and see a doctor or go and see a psychologist. But this is what happens when people fall in love, isn't it? They have all these these strange symptoms. And as I mentioned, it's just like all those love songs. It's very tortured, and it's it's the power of craving that, the power of, we say, power of love that says, oh, if I have, if this person and I have a relationship, I will be perfect. I'll be complete, and uh, we'll be happy ever after. That's it, isn't it? It's Always happy ever after, and uh, of course, that's uh, that's often not the case. Especially a few years later, maybe divorce, separation. They, people go their way. People change. People get to know each other. <laughs> Often, this uh, love, particularly romantic love, based on not a projection—what we think they're about—they may not be like that at all. And then, when we when we grow to know each other, we realise, no, that's not that the, the person I thought I was getting into a relationship is not the person that I am in a relationship with. So. And this is this shows this is quite a good example of craving and the power of it, how it tortures us and how it obsesses us and I know from Sri Lanka it's exactly the same array re lots of love songs about love you know and it's all tortured and oh it's, it's really you know amazing and the, the the one of the things that's so um, delusive so um, it confuses us very, very much. Is that we, we assume that this craving, I'm choosing, I am wanting, it's my craving. We don't necessarily think, hey, maybe this is it's not me, this choosing, this craving. Maybe this is conditioning that's actually this craving. This is a really radical idea. It's actually using us. It's like a, a, like a, something that we think we've created. It's coming from us. But of course, it's non-self. This is what the Buddha says. It's come from conditioning, from all the influences that make us think this thing is so important in our lives. You know, whether it be through friends, through advertising, whatever it is, all this conditioning is fed us to make this choice, to crave for this, want this thing, whatever it be. But we think, it's us, don't we? This is the usual thing, I'm the one that's choosing. And of course, this is, this is the illusion that really gives power to craving. And it, it, craving is like the ultimate con person who says, believe me, believe me. When you hear those words, <laughs> believe me, I think then you think, danger, danger. Believe me, believe me, I'll make you happy. And I think it's a song called that, isn't it? (laughs) It I'll make you happy. And this is the power of craving. It's really conning us into believing it's going to deliver the good, conning us into believing that we're the ones that have actually created this craving. So this this is really, and in actual fact, we're really, you know, chess, chess, the game of chess, we're really pawns of craving. And hence that saying of the Buddha, or well, that word I just mentioned, tanha dasa, slaves of craving. But we're willing slaves of craving. <laughs> and I say to people, you know, you know, because people often say to me, well, you know, advertising, this is one of the big influences that actually gets us craving and desiring. Because once you see something, you hear about it, then, you know, the thought comes, well, oh, it's quite good, isn't it, really? And... Advertising tells us that we need this thing; we have to have it. And most people say, "I am not influenced by advertising," but then they go out and they buy it. <laughs> they find themselves buying it. And uh, I say to people, "People wouldn't spend billions on advertising if it didn't work. It absolutely does work, and it ties into that process that I mentioned that with the salayatin or the six sense bases. What we..." Encounter what we hear, what we see, smell, taste, and touch, when we have contacted that, that will give rise to a feeling. And based on that feeling, we'll go for it if it's a positive or a, a, um, a pleasant feeling. And if it's an unpleasant feeling, we won't go for it. And it's all, of course, it's very different for, there are differences between us, so we don't all go for the same same things, but the, but the, this uh, craving is a very conditioned thing that we, we, we can, uh, meditators can, to a certain extent, stand outside and see it. Just having the notion that craving is using us can be a useful thing for us to step back a bit, to, to look, you know, what is this leading to in my life? Is it actually going to really improve my life? Or is it just leading to this turbulence, leading to me abandoning, being quite okay in the present moment, maybe even content for something that's a future happiness? Craving's always about the future, isn't it? (laughs) About when we get this, even if it's a cup of coffee in five minutes or a cup of tea in five minutes or a meal. It's always in the future. And it's craving actually cons us into abandoning the present, which may be fine. For the future, maybe then creating a lot of um, agitation in the mind. I've got to get this stuff. I've got to get this relationship, and all these things. And of course, what was the Buddha's advice in his first teaching? What should we do about craving? Do you remember? What's what's the main job for us? As Buddhists, in relation to craving, yes, abandoning it, letting it go. This is our job. This is not an easy job, particularly when we feel like we're the craver, we're the chooser, we're the doer. Because when we crave, when uh, when we want... What does it do? It creates a lot of work for us. We have to go out there and do whatever to get the money, get or do whatever to get what we wish, what we want. And so it creates a lot of work. But the Buddha said the job for us is to abandon it. And in the Four Noble, in the first teaching, he mentions that he mentions the first noble truth. This is the origin of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. This should be abandoned. I have abandoned it. I have to let go of it. So we talk at towards the end of the talk. I talk about how we can abandon um, this. Oh, it's coming quickly. <laughs> Just looking at the time. Uh, how we can abandon this craving? Because that's the main point of uh, our ex- of of contemplating craving. How to abandon it, and whether that's a permanent abandoning or not. And in terms of second noble truth, I'll, I'll talk about that later, is that it's not permanent. It's only when we get to third noble truth that we can really abandon or let craving cease. So the Buddha mentioned uh, three areas that we are, three categories that lead to rebirth. And the first one of those is the uh, the uh, craving for sensual desires, sensual pleasures, the experience of the five sense world. This is called karma tanha, and this is the wor- this is the world we live in full time. We are very attached to those sights, smells, tastes, touches, and um, feelings in the body uh, and and thoughts about that world. This is the world that uh, that really. Uh, takes all our attention. This is the only world for most people. If we're not meditators, we haven't got that spiritual dimension That to, um, to look within. This is when we're focused on the, all these, on the five senses, it's seeing, hearing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, we're going out. We're not going in. We're not going towards the source of happiness. We think these things... These sights, smells, tastes and touches will make us happy. And, of course, they are pleasure. I like to distinguish pleasure from happiness. They are pleasant and they are pleasurable. But the senses of them, of an, in and of themselves, their nature, is that if any of those sense contacts last too long, it turns into the opposite. It's a real torture. If you have to listen to your favorite song, for 24 hours, would it still be your favourite song? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> it. wouldn't be mine anyway. You know how sometimes we get songs stuck in our heads and that can be quite unpleasant actually. And They just keep playing, as it were, and we remember it. And it's the same with any of the sense contacts. If it lasts too long, your favourite food, if you have to eat it for hours on the end, forget it. <laughs> it won't be favourite for, for very long. So the sense world is... What most people are living in, it's what the bucket list is about, isn't it? The d- to-die-for list, you know, I've got to see this, I've got to bungee jump over Niagara Falls or whatever it is. We're all, you know, this, exper- this we're experienced junkies, really. And this, is, this is the idea these days, this is where the craving focuses. But it's all based on he- on seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, isn't it? Nothing else. It's amazing. I always, I'm always stunned by how simple uh, the description the Buddha gives of, of experience, of life. And I try and think, well, I think, wow, well, it feels much more complex than that, <laughs> much more difficult than that. And then I look and I think, no, that covers it really, you know, when he mentions the sixth sense basis. Is there any other other sense that we have, any other way of knowing things? You might say intuition, but that's coming from the mind. But uh, So the, the Buddha really hones in on the nature of existence from an enlightened person's viewpoint, having stood outside the process, as it were. They can tell us what's going on and give us some good pointers. So this is, as I say, with the five senses. It's really where we hang out. But it is also, hello, Paul, this is where, which is stopping us from going inside, looking for inner happiness. And of course, this is the essence of nekama, Sankapa. this is the renunciation. We're renouncing the lesser pleasure for the senses, but the pleasure we know from the five senses. Everybody knows these sight smells Uh, tastes, touches and so on. They know them and they're familiar. That's where most people look for their happiness, not inside. And this is where the real happiness is coming from. This is where the happiness that we see in the world is actually being generated. That food, that person, that song, that whatever. Won't it make everyone happy? It's not coming from that, from the external. It's coming from here. We've given the value to it. We're giving the happiness to that experience. So, and in meditation, we're going in the opposite direction. And of course, the reason, one of the big reasons we get reborn, we want to experience all those things again. We want to see those people that are dear to us. We want to, we want to eat our favorite foods I think we'll try and get reborn in that situation. If you like Sri Lankan food, we'll try to get born in Sri Lanka. If we like whatever type of food, McDonald's type of food, <laughs> you can get born anywhere then. <laughs> it's pretty international. So the second type of craving I should uh, get onto is Bawa and this is the craving or the wanting to continue to exist. And this is uh, what most people really want is to continue to exist they we hang on don't we for dear life as they say onto this body as long as we can to stay in this uh, in this life experience this life continue to be able to experience the five senses and so this uh, sense of um, Wanting to continue to to exist is very very tied up with the senses, enjoying the senses, and as I mentioned, that's what we often get reborn due to wishing to re-experience. But a big part of bawa is a sense of self, I, me, myself, and the, for an unenlightened person, this is the natural a natural state of. Uh, delusion, we call it, don't we? It's not seeing things clearly, not seeing that, yes, there is something here, there is a personality, there is a character. I don't think anybody would deny that, would they? Because <laughs> you see it, very, even with babies sometimes, you know, very new, new, newborns, newly born children, babies, you see that they can have a character, a personality. But... It's not permanent. It's not going to stay like that. Our characters will not stay exactly the same. So this is what the Buddha is talking about when he talks about non-self. There's not a permanent I, me or myself in here. It's a work in progress, changing from life to life, sometimes for better. (laughs) Sometimes for worse, actually. You can see it in this life, can't you? Some people have good qualities and, and, and those good qualities reduce or um, get, uh, yes, get reduced. And other people, they stand, start out in a very, uh, very uh, um, bad qualities and they develop into good people or good person. And so the, this sense of self is to be someone is so important for us. And it reminds me of Ajahn Jayasaro. Saro, he, he was in America, this is an English monk who lives in Thailand, and he, sa- he said, he heard, overheard this American woman quite a few years ago saying to somebody, even though you're poor, you can become someone. <laughs> and for them, becoming someone, what's that mean? getting a lot of money, getting famous, maybe getting powerful, becoming a politician, becoming a singer, something like that. You know, so this is a, this is what we're driven, uh, what the sense of self drives us towards, to be someone. Because in essence, I think the problem of, of this sense of self, it's everywhere in the world. People can't quite pin it down. You know, what is myself? And so... You know, if you can get big homes, you get a lot of possessions, a lot of power. This is me. You know, it's me. Or fame. This is me. You know, so you get a sense of this self. Not thinking that maybe this this sense of self is just something that's changing. Maybe it is just character and personality. Maybe it's not something, a concrete that will continue and even meditators can have this sense of wanting to grab onto things, become great meditators, become jhana meditators, become uh, insight practitioners with deep insight. And sometimes people want to uh, get uh, the uh, breakthroughs to enlightenment. And they think of them like as badges or awards, something that they can really uh, accumulate. And this is, you know, like the first stage of enlightenment, second stage of enlightenment, third stage of enlightenment, and so on. So this sort of sense of trying to uh, get things in order to, you know, get this feeling of being someone is, is, is part of this uh, bhava tanha, this desire to continue, this wanting, craving to continue to exist. And the opposite is uh, the next one, which is vibhoa tanha. And this is when people have, this is the uh, craving to not exist. And I think everyone here has probably met people who, who would like that. Is, is that the case? I've met quite a few people who, for instance, they're they, uh, just fed up, fed up with life. They can't see the meaning, they can't see the purpose, they can't understand what's going on. And so they just want to finish, that's it. And of course when somebody has that attitude, when they have that thought in mind, then it leads very naturally towards something like suicide. Or we see quite often when people get old and the suffering of the body can give rise to such incredible suffering for them that they just want, want it all to be over, just to finish. And uh, not to, not, just to not exist would be uh, great. And so this is the, that uh, idea to end existence. And sometimes people say, you know, this sort of uh, really, it's quite a negative, uh, a negative intention coming from aversion. We're just so averse to life. And uh, sometimes people have the idea, this is, you know, uh, the idea that when the body dies, it's all finished. This is a bit like Tanha, this is like, but often people who think that is the case find that very uh, depressing, they find that very distressing, because most of the people who even subscribe to that view, all their lives building up, attaching, accumulating, and then the idea that at death, finished, all gone, is really, that's confronting, that's a tough one. So it's, um, that is also uh, an aspect to this. But this idea of, uh, for instance, ending existence, that's uh, Vibhautama, the Buddha says, it leads to rebirth. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) But of course, why is that the case? Because it is a kind of craving or wanting, takes us into the future for sure, but it's coming from willpower. It's coming from I'm going to end this life. I'm going to finish with being reborn. I don't want any more of this, thank you. Because many people, they realize, yeah, there's difficulties in this existence for sure, and they just want to be out of it. And so it's coming from also this really strong negative aversion, isn't it, with uh, the situation they're experiencing. and They just want to be out of it. And so it's coming from a very intensified sense of self in a way. It's strange, isn't it? And the Buddha says, the result? You'll get reborn. And of course, some people, Ajahn Brahm has a very interesting simile. It may work for some of you. It may may. It occurred to me when I was thinking of this talk. He said, you know, trying to destroy the self, trying to end existence like this, is like trying to eat your own head. It's a strange simile, trying to eat your own, can't can't do it. (laughs) It's, It's like trying to destroy the self with the self. This is the idea behind it. And as I mentioned, the Buddha says this will lead to rebirth. And sometimes people will say, well, don't Buddhists want to put an end to rebirth? And of course, that's absolutely true. That is true. But it's coming from, uh, we often call, the Buddha often talks about, it's not craving, it's it's called chanda, chanda." and this is more like an aspiration. It is a desire. Sometimes in the Buddha's teaching, it has a negative aspect, but... Often it has a positive aspect too. Chanda is like this aspiration pointing the mind in a direction. And so this is this sort of craving or this sort of uh, uh, motivation, aspiration, is, can be for things like wanting to liberate the mind from, uh, from desire, to be free, the desire to end desire. That's quite nice, isn't it? The desire to end suffering or unsatisfactoriness. So there are some forms of uh, desire that can take us in a direction to practice. Because often this is the the thing people say, well, you know, your Buddhists say desire is all bad, but then what about the desire to practice, you know? And of course, there is this sort of positive aspect to it. It can lead to some unsatisfactoriness and suffering because... We often think, oh, I want to meditate. And it's not like I want it to be, you know, having these expectations. So it can lead to to that. So, but uh, the difference between this vibhava tanha, this uh, desire to end existence and the Buddhist idea of rebirth ending is that The the desire to finish with existence comes from self, as I mentioned, whereas the Buddhist idea of allowing rebirth to finish, allowing the process to cease, comes from wisdom power, from understanding deeply the nature of the world, understanding reality. And when one understands reality then the process can cease. Then this viraga, fading away, can happen. So it's only from wisdom. It's not from willpower. Someone who wants to just be out of here, you know, they want to finish uh, existence altogether, that's coming from willpower. But someone who understands the process, the mind, what's liberated? What gets liberated? The mind. It's the mind. It's not a self. <laughs> it's not me, I. It's the mind gets liberated once it understands the situation as it really is. We letting go and let go of getting rebirth, let go of craving, because that's what keeps us in the loop, as we say. You know, that keeps us getting reborn. This craving, this wanting, and uh, this slave driver, <laughs> whom we mistakenly think. Is us but it just drives us and I think so many of us can see that in their our lives this uh, this being driven by these strong uh, desires and, and thinking they're coming from us but in actual fact it's uh, it's non-self too <laughs> it's not us <laughs> so then that enables us to let go of it which is the third noble truth really seeing very very deeply that this craving isn't really our possession. We're not the owners of craving. We are not the creators of craving. It's the conditions and causes around us. So I'd like to finish there because it's getting late. It's not so half. I didn't really get to the end of how we. Maybe I'll just say a little bit about how we abandon. Yeah, just just a bit because that's a. And as I mentioned, the second noble truth is about letting go of this craving, but it's not a permanent one because the third noble truth mentions that the cessation of that very same craving. And that comes from seeing deeply, of course, that it's impermanent, but particularly it's this craving is impermanent. It's also dukkha. It's also suffering, unsatisfactoriness, and it's non-self. That's the biggie. When we think when we realise that it never belonged to us, it wasn't ours. It's very easy for it to be let go of it. It's like we don't worry about the neighbours washing or the neighbours whatever. That's their business, not our business. And when we realise this craving is not our business, we can let go of it. Because we don't own it. We're not responsible for it. We can just let go of it. That takes a lot. But uh, in terms of letting go of craving, of course, you know, the, the Noble Eightfold Path is really the way that we can do that, particularly through right effort. Avoiding things that give rise to negative states of mind, such as craving. (laughs) So, if you don't look at the catalogues and you don't don't uh, do a lot of window shopping, that's a condition for not allowing, for avoiding the arising of craving, and then to be able to let go of it. And also, the positive side of the right uh, right effort is uh, developing wholesome states of mind, and also maintaining them. So they are the very important ones too. If we have the understanding that happiness is in here, not in the shops, not not in the food, not in the movies, whatever, then that's we're looking in the right place. And of course just having the sati sampajana, full awareness of what we're doing. This is sati, understanding what's going on in our life. And having that ability to say, no. It's not, a, it's not something we're good at, <laughs> saying no to things that we find very tempting. And uh, it's actually something, if we see, you know, if we see, ah oh, yeah, when I say no to some of these cravings, I feel quite happy. I'm getting freer. And that can bring us a sense of happiness from that. And, of course, investigating is always important, um, you know, looking into experience, understanding experience. And uh, so, and of course, understanding the nature of unsatisfactoriness, nature of craving, really when we focus on that, that it's not nec- It's as I say, it's conning us. Um, it's not leading necessarily to our happiness. It's all in the future. We abandon, let go of what the happiness we have now and that it's leading to all these things. By focusing in this way, we can actually um, let go of craving, of wanting, temporarily we can let go of it until we have attained the first stage of enlightenment, it's always going to be, Ajahn Brahm said this, he said until the first stage of enlightenment all restraint we have to restrain ourselves, not give, give in to it, uh, to see that we're getting freer by actually being able to say no to some of these things so I'd like to finish the talk there and hopefully we can free ourselves from the slavery that we're in. <laughs> so it's quite a deep book. So, thank you. There we are. So are there any comments, questions or complaints? Somebody saying, I'm not a slave.
0: <laughs> thank you, Ajahn. Yeah. Just with respect to abandonment, so the Buddha says, okay, craving arises, abandon it. Okay, great. Now, in practical application of that, Mm. let's say, Mm. and I'm going to use a chocolate bar as a simple object Mm. of craving.
1: Mm.
0: So you go to Woolworths, Coles, or your Mm. little organic shop, and you do your daily shopping. and you come up to the checkout counter and bingo, thrust yeah. right there in your face yeah. is your favourite chocolate bar yeah. or is a chocolate bar. Mm. And you go, okay, well, this chocolate bar is full of sugar. That's not going to do me any good. It's going to mm. give me an insulin rush. and um, you, know, it, it's, you go through all the logic about mm. how this chocolate bar in the future will not bring you happiness. Mm. But that doesn't work. You're still craving the chocolate. Uh, So Mm. if you just go into will, say, okay, that's it. I'm not Mm. having it. Mm. You you exercise willpower. Mm. Is that a satisfactory solution? Not to, to not getting the chocolate, chocolate
1: yeah not really, not really because if there isn't some wisdom power there even though you've done, you have uh, acted from will and you've not done that thing, um, you will probably th- we will probably think, oh, I missed out. I, oh, that would have been nice, wouldn't it? We'll have that idea. So we need to have some wisdom power about it, and some different way of looking at it. And what I was suggesting is the restraint is really comes. It's really possible for us if we see we're actually getting free. We're getting mm. free from the. Power of this craving we're getting free from a negative emotion like anger you know it's like some, we, some people we see may make us very angry very easily and and we get good at being angry but if we then have the ability to say look I'm not going to be a slave of anger I'll just say no to anger and then we get the happiness from feeling like I didn't say that, I didn't do that. And that gives us a sense of freedom. So, really, the taste of freedom, of vimutti rasa, as the Buddha calls it, is what can enable us to let go of these temptations, you know, like the chocolate bar, let go of negative emotions too. What we're doing is we're seeing the benefit for us, a bigger benefit. Being free of, of of the power of this craving, of this wanting, of this negative emotion. So that makes that is where we can really get some uh, ability to uh, to use sense restraint in a good way. Otherwise, willpower willpower has its limits, mm. and there's always there's always a negative. I think from my feeling too is negative feeling. I missed out. <laughs> I, on on this or that, you know. So I I think this is very important, is that feeling like, yeah, I'm, oh, fantastic, I I said no to it, I didn't have to get it. And then we we feel this sort of sense of freedom. And everybody, I think that sense of freedom people really value, actually, I do. I think it's this form of happiness, actually, that we didn't have to do that, we can actually uh, restrain and as I said, until we get to the first stage of enlightenment and above, it, and the, and the Ajahn Brahm mentions that it's all a matter of restraining <laughs> till, mm. till then. Once we see the nature of reality, easier, not much of a problem. There's a lot of conditioning still to, you know, if we've got conditioning to see a Mars bar or whatever it is, <laughs> that uh, an association, then that tendency will go towards it. But uh, the sense of freeing ourselves is is can be helpful. Can be helpful, I think. All yeah. right. Okay. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks. And from the online. All right. Yeah. Just one. Just. All right. Yes. Yes. Cora. Yeah.
0: Now, um, one of our biggest issues, I guess, is the mobile phone. Yeah. Uh, I just wondered if you'd like to comment on that. It may not be advertising as goodies Mm. and chocolate bars Mm. and so on, but it's this business of being Mm. um, able to be in contact
1: Mm. with
0: anybody at any time. Mm. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that? Is it uh, restraint for a monastic, self-restraint? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm really, really interested.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Cora, because I think that is the, the mobile phone is is very much about uh, sense, the senses, particularly hearing and um, seeing, isn't it? Very much. And you, you see the effects that it has on, has on ourselves and other people. It can have Uh, These negative effects, you know, people, uh, what they see on the uh, internet, what they read, whether it be in emails, whether it be in the news, whether it be in videos, YouTube and so forth, can make them incredibly angry. It can make them incredibly violent. It can make them, you know, have very uh, divisive opinions about things, can lead to many negatives. It can lead to very many positives too because never before in history has the Buddha's teaching been so available you know the actual teachings of the Buddha there's lots of opinions too many 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 opinions about that teaching mine included but so it's it is an interesting medium that is making our lives much much quicker speeding everything up people and we see you know if we see that the consequences of that are leading to Um, uh, negative mind states, negative emotions, then we have to use our sense restraint and say, this is not for my benefit. I'm not, you know, it's using me. (laughs) And I'm getting angry. I'm getting upset. Um, It's not working for me. And then some sense restraint is really important. Uh, Maybe, you know, just having uh, the phone on silent, like I have uh, the phone on silent, that's very helpful too. It slows down the pace of things. I can remember people used to write letters and they'd wait a week or two or maybe even longer for a reply. But now, if it's two or three days... People will really get upset, you know, they'll they'll think something's wrong, are you well, (laughs) have I said something, you know, that's usually what they think, I must have upset them, they haven't replied, it's been over 24 hours. (laughs) So we have to see, you know, what effect it's having on our minds, that's what the Buddha is interested in, he's not so interested in the external world, the world for the Buddha is this body and mind, this is what our experience of life is about, this body and mind. And so this is where we need to pay attention. And when we understand this body and mind, the one we have, we'll understand much better other people's bodies and minds too if we understand it deeply. But our job is always as uh, practitioners, as spiritual, um, as spiritual seekers, is really to look at the effect it's having on our mind, our hearts. If it's a negative Good to not go there. The Buddha always talks about those three three ways of uh, uh, evaluating things. First of all, is it for my benefit or harm? Is it for the benefit or ha- harm of others or for both? So we just see, is this working for us or not? Uh, if it's working for me and harming others, then that's not good either. And then he says, "Well, where is it coming from? Is it come from a negative place? Is it coming from a lot of wanting, craving, a lot of anger, aversion, a lot of sense of delusion? You know, this, this particularly the sense of self. And if it's coming from these negative spaces, then not to follow it, then not to to get involved with it. But if it's coming from positive motivations, great." That's good. Okay. And then, it's very, very thorough, the Buddha, Buddha, then to look at the results of our actions, our speech, and even our thinking to see, were the results um, pleasant or or unpleasant? Uh, Painful, that's usually what the Buddha says. Were they pleasant or painful? And from that, we can really get an idea of how we should deal with whatever situation we're experiencing it whether it be in mobile phone or our next-door neighbor or people at work or wherever, people in the Buddhist society. You know, this is how we can evaluate our experience. Very, very, very useful. So but this technology, of course, is making life, uh, um, what you say, it's really um, speeding it up for sure, and uh, it can um, feed... Particularly our um, defilements, our negative ones. You know, as I mentioned, anger. Pornography is a big part of the internet. <laughs> it's becoming sort of almost a daily, sort of uh, a very, uh, very uh, frequent experience for many people and changing lives. So it's, it's souping up. It's, it's. Uh, what do you say? It's, um, it's power driving some of the defilements for people and of course the nature of the internet is that it will give you more of what you are looking at <laughs> so whatever it be whether it be good or negative so it's uh, it is something that very much we need to use a sense restraint we very much we need to evaluate the effect it's having on our minds and to then make a wise decision about it this is called uh, wise attention or when we realise that something's giving rise to negative states of mind, let it be. Don't 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 go that way. It's very hard to because of course you know these defilements con us into thinking that it's happiness. And uh, when we get angry, when we get a lot of lustful states of mind, it just leads to big turbulence and disturbance in the mind. Uh, it's not It's not a happy experience at all. So then you have people who are, who are going through addiction to pornography, addiction to being angry, you know for focusing on political stuff or whatever, which is not of use to them or anybody else pretty much. so So that's uh, some reflections, Corey. yeah, they, it's a, we live, we're living in a very interesting time. No other generation's been quite so exposed to to this. And uh, it was very interesting, I saw a video clip on, on the internet from David Bowie in the 1990s, 1999, and he said, the internet means we've abandoned the idea of singularity, a single narrative about things, an idea, you know, a view of things in one way, for a lot of different views, multiplicity. He's saying this in 1999, And you can just see how it's really opened up. All these divisions, you know, that we see in society, so many people believing different things, things that we find hard to understand, how anybody can believe these things, you know, all these different views and opinions that are out there. And the Internet is, you know, obviously it's powering it, but of course, you know, at the same time. um, I think I liked what he said. He said, it's, at the same time, it's extraordinarily exciting but it's also terrifying because <laughs> we don't know where it's going. And that's true. Exciting is that it's a, a positive opportunity, terrifying because of the negative consequences too that we're seeing to a certain extent. And how this generation will change, how human beings will adapt, will be very interesting to see, actually. It will. It, it, hopefully we will make it. Human beings are very resourceful. Uh, so hopefully we will... So thank you for that, Cora. I think it's a a big area, isn't it, really? I think uh, everybody's focused on the the, uh, effect of of, uh, modern technology, and particularly the internet and the smartphone and all that. I know I've heard uh, that they've done studies where um, they've monitored young people, and evidently they register anxiety if they haven't checked their phone in the last so many minutes or so forth. So we are getting very dependent and very anxious. It's become part of our connection to the world. And these days our, our mobile phone is part of our identity. You can prove your identity if you've got a mobile number. If you've got no number, if you haven't got no phone, your your sense of identity is reduced it's uh, it's quite interesting the time we live in. So yeah, thank you. Thanks, Sri Truth. And is there any online? There
0: probably is. Yeah, there is a lot of online. Yeah, so sort of the subject yeah. that leads to that. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably reached the cut off
1: now. All um, right, just one question, and then we can go because ten to eleven. So at eleven o'clock we have a shared meal. So please all come come along for the shared meal. Yeah,
0: we had a, a couple of online questions. There's, there is one relating to. Um, Meditation that was carried over from last Sunday, All right, uh, which yeah. we forgot to ask on the Monday. So we apologize for that, but we promise we will ask that tomorrow. Okay, All right. so thank you Oh, tomorrow night? Yeah, tomorrow night. Yep, good. But I'm um, just, in the interest of time, I'll just ask one question here. Mm. We'll probably give a brief answer to it. Mm. And it's, um, it's going on from um, following up from James's question earlier. It says, yes. Can rep- Can repressing strong and persistent cravings be a good thing for everyone as opposed to an individual?
1: Yeah, for everyone. Only if we do it with wisdom, if we do it with awareness, um, if we have a purpose, a reason for doing it. If it isn't done with a purpose and reason, you know, an understanding, then it will—it it can lead uh, to, I think it could lead to people feeling like they're missing out, they're denying themselves these pleasures. Um, they They haven't got any other pleasure to replace it with. Because basically human beings, you know, we need happiness, we need joy, pleasure in mind. It's just a matter of where we get it. <laughs> But if we don 't have the idea that it's inside that we can develop it inside we can develop it through meditation, through understanding and wisdom, through insight, then uh, you know denying or suppressing our um, our wantings and cravings and uh, desires, I think that won't be sustainable anyway, but it will it, I think they use the word suppressing yeah, but there has to be a reason for it and if the reason is good. If we really think this is really leading to my happiness, to my freedom, then I think that's possible that we can do it. Otherwise, it's not possible, I don't think. You know, just, you know, most people know this and that, eating this food, that food's not good for me, or I'll put on weight, as James said, but they still go and do it. (laughs) They still go and do it. But they've got to have a reason, have an understanding of why they're not going that way. And then if that reason, that understanding is strong enough and gives enough happiness to them, then it's possible, I think, to say no. But saying no, it reminds me of Oscar Wilde said, um, the only uh, what do you say the only thing the only thing I can't resist is temptation <laughs> that's what he said I can resist anything but temptation <laughs> that's really quite, quite quite significant so yeah quite a funny statement that's yeah, true so thank you very much for that question and I think now we can just end and finish the Uh, Very interesting time, I hope, for you on wanting craving and uh, being slaves of craving. Let's not be slaves of craving. (laughs) But still, come and enjoy the food over there, but enjoy the company and the connecting so good. For those who'd like to, we can pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. Finish off.